The following program was made possible by the generosity of those who have determined to hold fast to the true Roman Catholic religion, as expounded by the Roman Catholic Church before the disasters of Vatican II and the so-called New Mass. Hello and welcome to another live edition of What Catholics Believe. I'm your host, Thomas Nagley. With me tonight is Father William Jenkins. He's a traditional Catholic priest in the Society of St. Pius V. And he serves as the pastor of Immaculate Conception Church right here in Norwood, Ohio. Hello, Father. How are you tonight? Very fine, Tom. Thank you. And you? Just the same, Father. Good. Very good to see you. Yes. Great to see you too, Father. Uh, prayer request, Father? Always. You know, please uh, keep Monica counted in your prayers and... Uh, Joe Percher, keep Dr. David Hofrichter in your prayers as he recovers, we pray. Of course, keep uh, Mr. Paul Riley and his wife, Amy, and their family in your prayers. We pray for Paul's uh, full recovery also. And uh, Donna King and Cliff Hogan, some of the other good souls we know who are in need of our prayers right now. So please remember them all. Remember Tom Wright. And uh, again, it seems that uh, an endless... A uh, throng of those who are ill and suffering. Um, Bertie Kunkel and uh, young Luke Kunkel, too, uh, needs, need prayers right now. And uh, just uh, a number of, quite a number of little children as well. Mm -hmm. So I commend them all to everyone's prayers. As I say, uh, mentally enclose them in the Immaculate Heart of Mary. And then uh, ask Our Lady to, to keep them there. Uh, whenever you ask for mercy for them, you can ask for all those you, you entrusted to Mary's Immaculate Heart. She knows every one of them. Um, also, of course, be praying for our country. And, of course, be praying for the Church in these times of great tribulation. Absolutely. Father, we, uh, we're in the month of June now, which uh, traditional Catholics have, for many, many years, uh, have dedicated to the Sacred Heart of Jesus, but uh, um, as of late, Father, the uh, the world has uh, rededicated the month of June itself uh, to the, um, what you call it, the LGBT uh, perversion. Um, and so we're, we're in the midst of that, Father, now we see a lot of these um, so-called pride parades and pride events uh, hosted throughout this, this month of June. We see um, all kinds of uh, Courthouses, uh, public buildings raising this um, LGBT flag, um, just a lot of, um, I guess, pride around this, around this perversion, this sin that cries to heaven for vengeance. But um, we're kind of in the in the midst of that, Father. It seems maybe this year it's kind of more um, prominent than than ever. It seems each year it kind of increases. Um, so, just any any comments, Father, on this month of June and and how the um, the world has has uh, dedicated this month of June to this this perversion. Any comments on that? <clears throat> well, Tom, first of all, uh, yes. <laughs> first of all, you mentioned the LGBTQ and all. And um, some people have objected. Um, objected to using those, those letters uh, as though we're already making a concession to this. You know? There's a reason why they're not telling us what those letters mean. They just like to be known by some strange uh, 
collection of letters to stand for a, a series of uh, words that really are, are perversions. But they don't like to say the words for some reason. Um, so they want us to, you know, just go with the, with the letters. Um, some are even trying to attach the letters to certain sayings, such as let, what is it? Uh, let's um, get Brandon to quit or something like that. Okay. Uh, wow. Trying to make it stand for something like that. Yeah. That's uh, evidently that's coming out on a T-shirt now. Okay. Um, but uh, instead of just going through this, you know, it, it sounds kind of ridiculous after a while to continually rattle off these letters that they give us. Um, so just to come up with some kind of expression like lugabut or something like that, I mean, L-G-B-T. Um, Mr. Frodo is lugabut, and let go with that, I guess, make a word out of it. In any case, um, it's interesting how they play with the language to mask the reality, sad to say, and uh, then start dictating what you can say and what you can't say, what words you can use and what words you can't use, what expressions you can use, uh, the terminology they want to control. Of course, we know that this is an old uh, mind control trick and uh, is used by uh, would-be tyrants and dictators everywhere they go to try to control what you can think of by the words that you're allowed to even think of uh, or to express your thoughts. So, uh, in any case, uh, but it is a, a sad fact that the month that is traditionally designated as a, a month specially dedicated to the Sacred Heart of Jesus and his love for us has been uh, seized, uh, stolen, co-opted, uh, whatever you want to call it, um, to the, um, the hom by the homosexuals to um, now stand for their perversion, and they they bundle all in the name of pride. If there's one word now that has come to signify everything uh, that they stand for and their their ideology, it's an ideology built upon a fetish. Though a fetish is a kind of pathology, <clears throat> something pathological, and so that's what is at the root of it all. But now it, it, it has been lionized and even canonized um, by the left uh, because it's, it serves the purpose. of uh, It's in the direction of this transgenderism, uh, transhumanism that they're trying to bring in uh, that we can change our very nature and change what it means even to be human. Um, and, and of course, that this is part of it, you know, to not except the reality of your gender, but you have uh, the right to control it. And if you, um, you know, if no matter what you are biologically, that is not the reality. The reality is how you feel at any given moment, how you identify at any given moment, the complete surrender to utter fantasy. And... Um, and this all serves the purpose of advancing this transgender, transhumanist mentality. Be whatever you want to be. Don't don't listen to reality. Just um, uh, basically defy um, God's creation and create yourself. 
the way you want to imagine yourself, the way you imagine yourself. And it's very destructive, utterly destructive, of course. Um, it is a complete rejection of God as creator, um, as um, the determinant of human nature and the uh, creating of us in his own image and likeness. That is really what is targeted here, the fact that God has created us in his image and likeness. And there are those who want to destroy that image, certainly that likeness by grace, but they want to destroy the image itself, even the rationality of the human being. They want to destroy that. And, of course, this is the work of hell. This is Satan's work. He hates the image of God in man, by, by grace, but by nature. And he wants to... Um, attack that and and have us. Now, you can't destroy our nature. Um, but he wants us to despise, uh, dis- detest, and utterly disfigure our nature um, as a, and make it a caricature, not an image or likeness of God, but a caricature of himself, of, of Lucifer himself, really. So uh, as, a, as a mere rebel, but that's all he is. He's just a rebel who's motivated by hatred to attack everything good and decent. To attack everything innocent. Innocent is, is what he hates. So, uh, in any case, this is what we're dealing with now. Um, you know, Catholics themselves need to cling all the more tenaciously to the, to the love and reverence for the Sacred Heart of Jesus during this month. And we need to do that um, out of love, but that love should motivate us to want to make reparation to our Lord for the sacrileges and the blasphemies that are hurled against him by those who hate him during this month. Uh, We should want to do everything in our power to uh, unite our hearts to the heart of our Lord, and to be willing to um, offer up whatever we can in homage to him and professing our love for him during this time. And so that's what we intend to do. You know that uh, we intend to make reparation to our Lord's Sacred Heart here in Cincinnati by praying, praying the rosary, actually, at the beginning of the Pride Parade uh, in downtown Cincinnati. Our intention is to, to be downtown, um, and to be praying the rosary. Now, we, we have been going to the courthouse, the Hamilton County Courthouse, uh, first Sunday of the month, after first Sunday of the month. Uh, they've been doing this about two years now. And um, each, each of those Sundays, the first Sunday of each month, we pray the 15 decks of the rosary. And uh, we offer that to God as a plea, pleading, pleading for mercy. So therefore, I mean, we, by the by that, we mean we're making reparation for the sins of the past, and we're asking God to deliver us from the power of the sins of the future. Um, we're praying for ourselves, for our families, our countries, our, our country, the United States of America. And um, so this particular month of June now, uh, we're going to do something, well, I would say special. We're going to uh, not only have the the rosary on the first Sunday of the month, which we just did this last past, last past Sunday. But we're going to also pray the rosary uh, on the courthouse steps 
uh, on the 24th of June, which is the date of this uh, Pride Parade, and we're going to be asking God's mercy for ourselves, our families, our country, also for those who are who are involved in the um, I would I would have to call it the kind of self imprisonment, the bondage you'd call it bondage of homosexuality. We're praying for them too. You know, as as the days go by, the whole program of the homosexuals, the Lugwits, or whatever you want to refer to them as, the whole program from beginning to end is about recruiting. It's about recruiting. And the prime recruits are going to be in the children, and they know that. And so they've made it very clear that they are coming for the children. And they are coming for them. They're coming for them in the marketplace with the, uh, the pride uh, apparel. They're, they're pushing in the face of the children. They're marketing to these children. Uh, they're coming for the children in the schools, the government schools. They're all about this. Indoctrinating and, yes, grooming the children for this. Uh, that they will be, uh, in a sense, fresh meat for the ligament uh, meat grinder and provide um, new recruits for them, who then, who themselves will later on be recruiting and grooming the children uh, for themselves as well. And, uh, you know, there are, there are those who are homosexuals who see this and they don't agree with it either. Um, there are those who are homosexuals who have actually denounced this every bit as firmly and as resolutely as anything I've said or, or you've said or, um, because they, they, they recognize that this is, this is wrong and they, they find it embarrassing and mortifying that there are those acting in the name of all of them um, to, to do these terrible things to the youngsters. Um, it's interesting to find, but there are homosexuals who are horrified by, by the fact that the children are being, are being targeted by, by a number of their uh, homosexual uh, compatriots, if you want to call them that, uh, members of the so-called pride community, uh, because they think it's just wrong to do that with children. Um, and I, I find that hopeful for them, you know, we have to pray for them that they will come to see that the whole, the whole, the whole thing, the, the whole pride enterprise is uh, is morally wrong and has to be, has to be rejected and resisted. And so we have a lot to pray for. Heaven knows, um, the enemies of our country are fostering this, of course, because they believe that if we can break down American social life to just one huge orgy, that they, the enemies of our, our nation, can simply walk in and take over and um, basically um, make an American zoo out of us and uh, almost have us on display for their pleasure and their derision to see, see what these Americans have become. You see what their ideals have, have turned into. Even do you see what Christianity has become. Um, and uh, they, want, they really want to make a mockery of everything we, we've ever stood for in our country. And the way they do that is by getting us to make that mockery. And that the greatest mockery of everything uh, that we have stood for really comes down to this. This is what we call, what they now call pride. 
By the way, uh, the choice of the word pride to signify uh, and to kind of uh, encapsulate everything they're doing uh, is so apt. It's so apt because it is the first of all the capital sins. The foundation of all the other sins is to be found in human pride and rebellion. And if there's one thing that ties all of this together with uh, Satan and his, and, uh, and not only his place now, but his fall, it really is the word pride. That's what it's all about. That proud spirit there who abs- adamantly refuses uh, to acknowledge the true God and, and the order of his creation. He's, he's uh, perpetually declared the enemy, uh, no matter how much it costs him, uh, just to serve his own pride. Yes, the, the choice of that word is, is, fits perfectly. Uh, do you know the history of this whole thing? You, know, you remember the Stonewall riots back in the 1960s? 69, I think it was, right? Well, this was the start of it all. Uh, the Stonewall riots, and uh, trace the history of this whole movement. And uh, you see it just mushrooming it from there. And I tell you, the reason why it's, it's gaining traction is because they have, and I say the advocates of this, of basically homosexuality, um, the practitioners of it, the advocates, the purveyors of it, have gotten into positions of power, political power, financial power, and they are using all of their resources now to drive this. Um, it is a mania. It is a kind of mania that just takes over their lives so that it's what their lives are all about. It's what they live for. The fetish mm-hmm. has just taken over their lives. Mm-hmm. And they want it really to take over the world. It's, it's kind of a... Uh, well, a kind of mania, I don't know what else to, you know, what other word comes to mind right now, that drives them uh, to see every man, woman, and child on the face of the earth subject to this, on board with this, actually uh, um, not just okay with it, but actually glorifying it, glorifying it. The entire world must, as Satan tempted our Lord, I will give you the kingdoms of the world and all their glory, if falling down, you will adore me. This is the kind of evil spirit that demands adoration and can settle settle for nothing less. Demands the adoration and acceptance, uh, the complete domination of everyone throughout the world and will not brook any resistance. Mm -hmm. So um, the the only power here on earth that can offset, that can resist this and overcome it is the power of divine love. I would say the only power that can resist this fire burning, burning in the, in the, in the breasts of those who are given to this vice, the only power that can resist that fire, which I would confer, I would, I would actually refer to the fires of hell itself is the, the fire of the Sacred Heart of our Lord and His love. So um, when they designated June as their month for pride, uh, in a sense, they declared war. 
on the Sacred Heart. And um, we might even say that they, they publicly acknowledged the warfare of the Sacred Heart, of this, the warfare that the Sacred Heart declared against them with the, with the incarnation of the Son of God. And that Sacred Heart of Jesus burning, and beating in his breast um, throughout his lifetime until it was stilled by the soldier's lance. Actually, his heart was already stilled before that. The soldier's lance did not stop the Sacred Heart from beating. It was that moment that he had fulfilled his purpose, that he, the purpose for which the Father had sent him, and he cried out, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And he gave up the ghost, and his heart stopped at that moment, because his mission was fulfilled. Uh, as if to say uh, that we could not be the agency that actually terminated his life here on earth. As he said, I freely take up my life and I freely lay it aside. I freely put it, put it down. I give it up. And so on the cross, when the moment came, he himself announced, uh, it is consummated. And with the words, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit, then his sacred heart finally stopped. But that sacred heart has really never stopped loving. Um, even when the soldier's lance opened it on the cross, it was still not silent in the sense that there, there burst out of it the, the blood and the water, which St. Augustine sig says signify the sacraments, especially the sacrament of baptism and the sacrament of the Holy Eucharist. And um, so we, we find that the sacred heart of our Lord is still there. It is still open for us. When he rose from the dead, when he appeared to the apostles, he had them come and look and examine the wound in his side, uh, leaving this, this passage directly into his, his own heart. This was what was so amazing to them. They knew he had died on the cross. They had a hard time accepting the fact that he would die on the cross when he told them ahead of time. They even had a harder time accepting that he not only had he died, but now he was alive. They had a very hard time understanding that. I mean, when you look into the side of a person who's standing there, very much alive, and you're looking at the wound leading directly into his own heart, and he's, you know, you say, this is a mortal wound, and yet this person is standing here very much alive and even glorified in front of me. Uh, this proposes a great mystery to all of us. Well, it certainly did confound the apostles. And we know St. Thomas the Apostle, a week later, had to confront the same reality of the resurrection of our Lord. And our Lord's sacred heart is not silent in all these years. It still cries out uh, for mercy for us from the cross in the Holy Mass, in the tabernacle. Our Lord's sacred heart is still is, is interceding for us in heaven, as uh, the Gospels say. Uh, so the heart of our Lord is not silent, even now. Um, and so there is, there, there is this warfare uh, that goes on between the love of God and the perversity of fallen, not only angels, but fallen men. And uh, our Lord's continual appeal to them, uh, continual appeal to them to come back to him. Because what they are in search of, they, they cannot find in the fires of hell, 
or in the fires of lust. They can only find that in the fire of the love of God. So our Lord continues to appeal them. Many of them, like Judas, refuse to respond to that appeal. But there are many who answer that appeal of our Lord's love. And uh, you and I have to help them do that um, by being willing to, uh, uh, to offer whatever we can in terms of retribution and reparation to the sacred heart of our Lord and his love for us. So that's what we intend to do this June and, and always. Mm. Father, what is the significance of, uh, of public reparation? You mentioned your uh, event downtown, but um, if, you know, talking about reparation and how that's directed towards God, one could do that in his own life, one could do that at the, at the, at the church. Um, what, what is the significance of, of, of making this reparation actually public? Well, there are two things, okay? There are two things. <clears throat> One of them we read in the Gospel. There were times, uh, and notably, one time in particular, when our Lord made a promise that uh, people rejected. When he said, I will give my flesh to eat and my blood to drink. He who eats of my flesh and drinks of my blood abides in me and I in him. Amen, amen, I say unto thee, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you will not have life in you. These words of our Lord repeated in St. John chapter 6 make it very, very clear to us today as it made it very clear to the people who heard them for the first time uh, in the street, in the synagogue of Capernaum long ago that our Lord would give his promising to give us his own flesh and blood to nourish us, body and soul. And uh, it was necessary to partake of that. As I mentioned before, if they'd been thinking in terms of faith, they would have realized that Jesus was saying, I am your sacrifice. You must partake of me, because that's what they did with their sacrifices. They ate of their sacrifices to show their, what they were offering was not just you know, a loaf of bread or an, a, a lamb. It represented themselves that they were offering uh, uh, to God. You know, their love, their, their allegiance, their lives, and so on. Uh, in this symbolic way through sacrifice. But they weren't thinking in a spiritual faith, a way of faith. And so they simply angrily left, shaking their heads, the gospel says, muttering, who can listen to this? This is a hard saying. Who can listen to this? Well, the gospel says that those who did that uh, would no longer walk with him. And that expression meant that they would no longer be seen with him. They would no longer be associated with him. They wouldn't gather with him in public. They would not uh, allow themselves anymore um, to be thought of as his disciples or really having anything to do with him from that moment on. And uh, so when we read this in the Gospel, we realize how important it is to stand with our Lord. And uh, then it, 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 that, that idea reaches a very special poignancy when we come to Calvary and we read of the few who were there with our Lord, standing under the cross, the Blessed Mother, St. John, the Apostle, who at first had fled with the rest of the Apostles, but evidently he came out, out of the shadows in order to support the Blessed Mother. Um, and because he had a special relationship with her, a special relationship which our Lord was going to canonize for the cross. But also Mary Magdalene, again, a special relationship, our Lord, the penitent out of whom he'd driven seven devils. And um, because our Lord had said, because she's been forgiven much, she has loved much. And there she was, under the foot of the cross. 
Um, but then there were some of the some of the holy holy women too. And we would say, well, this, those holy women were not in danger of being crucified. The men maybe, but the women maybe they had only to endure the opprobrium of being associated with one who'd been condemned to death as a criminal um, uh, for blasphemy by the Jews and for ins insurrection by the Romans, whatever. But uh, but these pitiful few there under the, under under the cross were the heroes they they were the they were pitifully few but not pitiable we honor them and uh we we look at their example and we want to follow that example today and this is the way we follow that example because we are not going to be ashamed of our lord our lord said if anyone's ashamed of me before men uh the, the angels of God really ashamed, right? Really ashamed of him. Um, that they would even almost make our Lord ashamed of them. And so we have to show we're not ashamed of him. And we will publicly be associated with him. And we will make it known that, yes, we are his disciples and we do believe in him. The importance of that um, is not only that we are willing to carry that cross for him and with him uh, before the world, um, but also because there are a lot of good people in the world who don't know what to do. They realize something's terribly wrong, um, but they feel quite lost and quite helpless. And they need some kind of strong voice, voice strong in faith. They need a, a powerful voice, powerful with a love for God. Uh, that will unabashedly, uh, undauntedly, unashamedly, um, you know, speak the words of God. And um, so, for the sake of all these good people out there, I think in particular of the children who are targeted now for being ligabutted by the people of, uh, uh, of militant homosexuality. Those who are now targeted by them. They need people to, like you and me to stand up and say, no, this is wrong. And, uh, you know, yes, I, I, you know, we might say, well, are we going to be addressing ourselves to the children? Well, we should be in many, many ways. Of heaven knows the ligaments are, are directing, addressing themselves to the children. They are targeting the children. Um, uh, that's a fact. We know that. They've, they've made no secret about it. They're boasting of it. In our very faces, they're boasting of it. Um, and so, yes, we should be talking to the children. But there are a lot of adults, including their parents, too, uh, who feel like they're almost being uh, engulfed in a tidal wave and being swept by a way of a tidal wave of this brazen uh, uh, onslaught of uh, the homosexual militants. And they need to hear a clear voice of Catholic morality. And I stress that, Catholic morality. As I've said before, Tom, I mean, anger is not a response. It is a reaction. And uh, disgust is not a response. It's a, it's a reaction. It's just a reaction. And even ridicule and laughter would be something we find revolting and kind of amusingly dis disgusting and, and degrading. Um, as people want to make jokes about these things today. And uh, that's, not, that's not a response in any way. 
the response that the only real response that uh, is in any way any way deserves the name of response is that which comes from faith and hope and charity. And that's what Catholics have to do. That's what we should be hearing from bishops. Uh, that's what we should be hearing from popes. Unfortunately, now, uh, the church is, is in the grip of modernists. And um, they have extolled, a, basically adopted a religion that is the synthesis of all heresies that St. Pius X denounced, and the religion, the new order that, that goes along with it, that flows from that modernism that they've embraced. And so we're not going to hear from them. Uh, uh, the strong voice to stand up for cat truly Catholic morality. <clears throat> a Catholic morality is motivated by a, a faith, uh, a faith in our Lord Jesus Christ as the King of Kings and Lord of Lords and the true Redeemer of mankind, the second person of us eternity made man. <clears throat> we have to have that that invincible faith in Him, and that He sent by the Father in turn sends the Holy Ghost to guide us in the church throughout all the ages. And that the work of the Holy Ghost is still very much present here. We have to show that even in our own lives. And we have to, we have to confront the world. As our Lord said when he said he would send the Holy Ghost, he said, the Holy Ghost will come and will convict the world of sin. First thing he said, the, the Holy Ghost will come and convict the world of sin. And we have to do that. Um, we have to convict the world of uh, justice, insofar as the world is not guilty of justice, but the fact is that God's justice already stands against the world and condemns the things of the world as evil. And um, also that uh, of judgment, that God's judgment awaits all those who uh, sell themselves um, to the world, give themselves over to the world, and it's... it's uh, you know, what we call the world, the flesh, and the devil, those who surrender themselves to, to serve that. Um, we have to stand up to that, but we have to stand up to it, not in anger, and not in ridicule, and um, not in disgust. But we have to stand up to that in faith, hope, and charity, which means we have to be motivated by a love. First of all, love for God. And uh, our love for God makes us want to... Uh, make reparation to him and repair the insult committed uh, to his majesty and his goodness. And um, that, that is the start of it all. That, that, that's what should move our hearts to grieve the insult given to a, and a loving father, to a loving father, God the Father. But our, we should also be motivated by a love for souls. That's what, that's what motivated our Lord to you know, our Lord is motivated first by the love for his Father, and then also uh, motivated by love for us. So when he died on the cross, his secondary purpose was that secondary love, and that is to redeem mankind. But the primary motive for our Lord's offering his life on the cross, the primary motive of his coming, was to make reparation to the Father. That is his greatest love. That's the love that our Lord wants us to have. He wants us to be motivated by the same love that is in his sacred heart. He wants us to be motivated, first of all, by love for Almighty God the Father. The Father. His entire life and death and resurrection was about 
uh, bringing us to the Father, reconciling us to the Father. The whole idea of religion, religare, is to tie us back to the Father again. Because you'd lost that. We'd abandoned that. We rejected that tie. And now our Lord has come to tie us back to the Father again. So our Lord wants that to be our first love too, and our first thought, our first motivation. But also he wants us to be motivated by a love for souls, as he himself was on the cross, and to offer ourselves for the redemption. Uh, we can only second the redemption wrought by Christ on the cross, but we can gain the graces necessary for the conversion of sinners, and we can set the example for others uh, of faith, hope, charity, uh, prudence, justice, fortitude, temperance, all the virtues that hopefully will inspire others to, uh, again, uh, follow follow the example, not only ours, but Christ's example himself. <clears throat> Find their way through all of this and well, stand, stand for the sacred heart of our Lord. Stand with the sacred heart of our Lord. That's, mm -hmm. what, that's what we need to do. Yeah. Father, how does someone know if his uh, intentions are, are pure, if they're in accordance with what you're describing here? Because it seems with, um, especially with this public uh, reparation, it seems there's at least the, the danger of, uh, of losing sight of, of the real meaning of reparation to God, like, like you've described, and it almost seems like we could... Uh, very easily, especially for, for men, for passionate men, to um, to kind of devolve into this more of a uh, of a uh, reaction type anger or, or something, almost like a we're going to confront the other side out of out of anger. Um, we have the uh, feast of Corpus Christi, Body of Christ, the Blessed Sacrament, um, in, in just a couple of days, and that's perhaps the single most um, effective way of of making reparation to God is is uh, through. Holy communions of, of reparation. So, um, could could we we say you know that that someone who um, uh, is not making holy communions of reparation that could be a, a sign that they're not truly motivated by a uh, by a real spirit of pure reparation to God, and perhaps they're leaning more towards this uh, reaction than a, than a response. Well, if they're looking for some kind of human means and, and human goal, uh, purely. Well, sheer, merely human goal. Yeah, they, they've missed the, the whole supernatural point of it all. Um, and one could even argue, falsely, uh, following up what you said here, Tom, that, well, we'll just make communions of reparation. We won't take any public stand. Well, I'm sorry, that's not the mind of the church. The mind of the church, you'll find expressed in the processions of the Blessed Sacrament, which is a public manifestation, a public manifestation of faith. That's what the church herself wants on Corpus Christi, this public manifestation of faith in our Lord. And, uh, you know, even to carry him through the streets of the cities and uh, to rally the, the faithful and even to rally the unfaithful to faith. You know, this is the mind of the church. So the public manifestation is very much a part of Catholic life. And um, again, going back to the, the idea that those who reject our Lord will not be seen with him but will not be associated with him. Um, and is, is it a danger? Is there a danger that one could um, fall into a kind of trap and getting uh, active? And uh, Yeah, of course there is a danger. You know, all the spiritual writers warn about that. And uh, unfortunately, there are people who use that as an excuse. Well, I better not do anything because it's, it's too dangerous for me to, <laughs> to speak up or manifest my faith in our Lord because it's too great a danger that I'll be doing it for the wrong reasons. 
<clears throat> and I think that's a cop-out myself. I think that's exactly what the devil wants them to think, because it would paralyze everybody from doing anything, ever, you know. Um, um, and that's manifestly, again, not the mind of Christ, and it's not the mind of the church. The dangers are always there, and so, in all humility, I mean, we have to be on guard against it. Yes, we have a de default mode, and that default mode for all of us is pride, the very pride that is motivating Pride Month, okay. Um, yes, we're all subject to that, and uh, we are all uh, infected <laughs> with that. Um, and so, the fact that we are concerned about it, though, aware of it and concerned about it, is the start of our self-defense. And um, so the solution is not to uh, simply walk away and say, well, it's too dangerous for me speaking up on behalf of God and, uh, and, and faith and uh, the church. Um, so I'm just gonna, going to be silent. Um, I think that way is cowardice. Uh, I think this, the answer is, well, look, I want to do something for our Lord. My intentions are good. I realize the dangers are there. And so I'm going to have to trust God to do two things. I'm going to have to trust God to give me the grace to uh, do the right thing, to do the right thing, but also to do the right thing for the, good, for the right reason. That the, the same Lord who's inspiring me to want to do something in his service has to um, be, be willing at the same time if he's calling me to do something in his service, to give me the graces necessary to do it for the right reasons, too. And so it is really a matter of trusting God in the first place. I find that most people who undertake heroic actions for God have started out with a great mistrust in themselves. I mean, you see that sometimes represented in sacred scripture when God commands Moses to go back into Egypt where he had a price on his head, confront Pharaoh, and demand that Pharaoh let the people go. And Moses immediately says, oh, I, I can't do that. You know, I, you know, I've got a speech problem. Uh, you know, they won't listen to me. Uh, you know, gee, I'm in trouble in Egypt already. He's making excuses. The same with Jeremiah. Jeremiah, you know, was it out of his pride and, and some other unworthy motive that he was trying to say to God, no, 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 not me. Send somebody else, okay? I don't know, but we do read in sacred scripture there, there are times when God has chosen someone to do something and their immediate reaction is, why, why me, not me? Uh, now, it could be Moses was motivated by fear um, and not by love and uh, humility. It could be that Jeremiah was motivated by a certain fear and not humility. We have the example of our Blessed Mother, though, who, you know, when she was confronted with that invitation from God to take that absolutely unique role as being the mother of the Savior who would give the Redeemer his humanity, the Son of God his humanity, that her initial reaction was, well, I have already a service that I'm engaged in, that I've already given to God, and that is my virginity. And she wanted, first of all, to make to see 
what was being asked of her in relationship to the service that she was already offering. And when the angel cleared that up and told her the solution to it, immediately she embraced the vocation that was offered to her by God. But even in doing so, she didn't say to the angel, behold the mother of the Lord. She was still his handmaid, even becoming his mother. And there was true humility there uh, in Our Lady in such a way that it was like a super eminent humility and always is the kind of touchstone for all Catholic understanding of what humility is and what humility should be. It, we find it in the, in the soul of Mary. So any, any Catholic man, woman, or child who you know, is, mo mo is moved by, by the grace of God, we pray, it is the grace of God moving them to uh, want to do some service to our Lord and so salvation of souls, that his first objective should be preparing himself. This is the way the knights were prepared of old for the great mission they had. They went through some serious training of knighthood. One of the most important things they had to, they had to prove was their purity of heart. Their purity of heart, not lust. Because if the knight was given to lust, he could not be trusted. Very important lesson today for those who are going out to do battle with institutionalized lust, which is all this is. Um, that, um, that they not be um, prone to this, that they not be tainted with it, that they not have this weakness. And so they really have to have purity of heart to um, not only be effective as a warrior, but even to survive the battle. They have to have purity in heart. Um, but again, how is one to obtain that? If he's even afraid to, to pick up the sword in the first place and learn how to use it. Um, so he, in a sense, has to put himself on that line on that front line and say, Lord, you promised the graces that I would need in order to uh, be, you know, ineffective in my service of thee. And um, I'm not undertaking this task because I want it. I'm not undertaking this task because it gives me personal great satisfaction. I'm undertaking this task because I see it is needed by souls. And it is a form of reparation to thy majesty and thy goodness, which I see gravely offended. So I'm trusting in thee, my God, my King, to give me the graces necessary to be an effective warrior for Christ. Mm -hmm. um, we see this in the lives of all the saints, whether they were fighting the battle in the monastery or fighting the battle uh, in, among barbarian tribes. Father, how, how, does, uh, how does one know if he is uh, called by God to pick up the sword, in, in, in your words? Um, I mean, God doesn't call everyone uh, in the same way that he called a, a Moses or, or a Jeremiah. Um, the church has always had contemplative souls who were um, less given to these more active public things and more, uh, more given more to, to prayer. Um, how does one know if he's actually being called to pick up the sword and... St. Paul says the sword of faith. He refers to the sword of faith. Okay. So we have to think, what does the faith require of me now? Uh, that's picking up the sword. 
Say, so what does my faith require me now? Um, my faith requires that I profess the faith. That means if I'm required to profess my faith, I'm required to pick up that sword. And I'm required to speak uh, with conviction of my faith. Uh, if, for example, we have a world which is so completely given over to, to lustfulness, sins of the flesh, that it has practically gone mad with these things. Just gone completely over insane with these, these sins, as like the world today. Um, then, you know, clearly, there is, there is the need for the voice of Catholic morality. And who, who is going to be able to, uh, in the midst of all of this, pronounce these words of Catholic morality, but those who are truly inspired by the truths of the Catholic faith? You're not going to get it from Francis. If you do, it seems like an anomaly. When Francis says something Catholic, it's, it really is kind of startling. And immediately, you know, it's, it's held up as though it's really newsworthy because Francis has said something Catholic. I mean, it's just, I'm sorry, but it's true. You know, one of these bishops, one of, one of his bishops, you know, they say something really Catholic. It's, it becomes, uh, you know, a co-celebrity. It's, it's spread around, like, and everybody's in admiration of it. There are those who are really angry because a bishop said something Catholic. And there are others who say, oh, look, a bishop actually said something Catholic. Yeah. And they're delighted with it. And, but they're, they're all amazed at it, <laughs> no matter whether they're for it or against it. They're all kind of surprised. A bishop says something overtly Catholic, courageously Catholic even. How did that happen? Yeah. Well, um, so it, it really is going to come down to traditional Catholics. Traditional Catholics who still have the faith and have enough faith, a strong enough faith, to actually go out of their way to suffer for their faith. When I say suffer for their faith, what do traditional Catholics have to suffer for their faith now? Well, to some extent, they have to, <laughs> they have to make sacrifices in terms of driving longer distances, incurring greater expense, um, spending greater time getting to the traditional Catholic Mass and sacraments. There is a sacrifice to be made there. Every traditional Catholic knows that there is sacrifice to be made there. <coughs> the, the availability of the traditional Mass offered by a real traditional Catholic priest, not a hybrid Novus Ordo quasi-traditional priest, but a real fully traditional Catholic priest, they're, you know, they're not re that readily available. You, you, very few Catholics find that just around the corner these days. And um, they may be driving half an hour, an hour, even maybe two hours or three hours to get to a traditional, real traditional Mass, receiving the true traditional sacraments, kneeling before what is undoubtedly the very body and blood of Christ on the altar. It all requires a great sacrifice. And every traditional Catholic who is responsible for himself or his family or her family uh, knows the sacrifice involved there. But there are other sacrifices too. There's a certain opprobrium that is being heaped upon traditional Catholics. I mean, even the FBI, you know, is sending, uh, sent up memos, sent up 
Richmond, Virginia office, be on the lookout for these people, okay, because they represent a certain danger or a threat, and we need to keep them under surveillance, okay? And uh, there's a certain mistrust in, in worldlings, and even among New Order Catholics, uh, for the traditional Catholics, as though there's something strange, weird, countercultural about them. Uh, and we have to be on our guard against them because they dress strangely, modestly, in other words. <clears throat> they don't curse and swear. Every other word isn't some vulgarity or obscenity, as is so often the case today. And they hold themselves to um, fasting and abstaining on Fridays and Holy Day, and not on Holy Days, but on, on Ember Days and Days of Lent. They, they actually do these practices. Um, it's almost as though to be a traditional Catholic, you have to um, expect that those who uh, live in the world, of the world, for the world, by the world, are going to look at you as kind of a cult, almost like you're in a cult. But as far as they're concerned, that's, that's cult-like. Yeah. You have to also... Uh, deal with the opprobrium heaped upon you by Francis himself, who has ridiculed and insulted traditional Catholics over and over again, especially young traditional Catholics. Who um, has said there's actually something psychologically disordered about them. There's some kind of diabolical, you know, strangeness about them uh, in in their rigidity. You know, Francis himself is heaping this opprobrium upon them. Uh, it it kind of reminds you of the the opprobrium that was heaped upon our Lord himself by his enemies, continually, continually bad-mouthing him, poor-mouthing him, trying to, trying to destroy whatever respect people had for him. And uh, traditional Catholics have, have, to be willing, have to be willing to deal with that. So, um, but, of course, central to that is not only just practicing their faith clandestinely, but that same, that same love for the faith leads them to inevitably speak about their faith and their, their love for our Lord to others, and they profess their faith. Not just by the miles they drive or the hours they drive to Mass or the fact that they're serving fish, you know, as the main meal on Friday uh, to the guests or whatever, but the fact that they are not ashamed of our Lord. They see that there are souls out there who are actually targeted to be um, absorbed, drawn into the homosexual lifestyle, and they have to they have to do something to protect them. They have to raise their voice and they have to speak on, on the basis of what is right and wrong. This is the moral law of Christ. They have to look. If if you knew that there was a con artist out there, and he was taking advantage of people and robbing them of their life savings. Uh, by deception, by defrauding them, and so on and so forth, would you feel an obli moral obligation, you who knew this, maybe you had been a victim of theirs at one time, I don't know, whatever it is, you know for a fact that that's what they're doing, and you see uh, your loved ones, your acquaintances, your neighbors, <clears throat> being drawn into this and being taken advantage of by this person, would you feel any moral obligation to speak up and to, to warn them? For my loved ones, certainly, yes. Uh, well, of course. Th those, 
especially those for whom you're responsible. But remember, I mean, the Good Samaritan, he was responsible for someone who was not his loved one. But he felt he had an obligation to care for this person. Yeah. And uh, our Lord expects us to have that charity toward all, uh, to protect the innocent. And in a case like this, I mean, this is so much more pressing than that. You know, it's not just a matter of trying to prevent someone from being defrauded out of his life savings. This is a matter of trying to prevent someone from being defrauded out of his very soul, uh, out, of, out of sanctifying grace, out, out of any hope of eternal life. This is the fraud. Uh, we, have to, uh, we have to, you know, unmask this. So we have an absolute obligation not to be silent in a case like this, but to... Uh, be a voice for Catholic morality. You know what? If we're not, uh, if we do not stand up and really speak authentically the, the Catholic morality that has been taught by the Church for all these centuries, so we can't plead ignorance, who is go what, what, what is going to happen? Those who do not have a real response to it, but are only reacting to it out of anger, out of disgust, they're going to lead. They're going to take over. It's just a matter of time before the pressure cooker explodes of anger against this. And then you're going to find devastation. Then you're going to find, oh, well, what should I say? I mean, it's, it's really awful. So the only way we have to uh, forestall that is by being the voice of real Catholic morality. And letting people understand, look, you know, just uh, uh, being hateful and spiteful, um, that, that is not, not a, a response. It, it's just an irrational and hellish reaction to a hellish reality. And you're acting out of your own personal pride. You're part of the problem. You're, you're actually part of the problem, and a very serious part of the problem. It's exactly what Satan wants you to do. So it's not only a matter of saving those who are in danger of being drawn into this spice, it's a matter of preventing others from uh, adopting an entirely, uh, not only false, but destructive reaction to it, too. Who else is going to do it but those who really have the Catholic faith and understand the Catholic morality of it? Yep. So it, it that really is incumbent upon us to step up and do that. Yep. <clears throat> stop. Uh, we have to stop excusing ourselves from from that. Um, uh, Moses tried. Uh, Jeremiah's tried. God didn't accept it, right? Yeah. And said, "No." He said, "I want you to do this. I want you to do this for me." Well, I mean, I'm no Moses. Maybe you'd say I'm no Jeremiah's. But you don't have to be. We have to be as Catholic right now. Have the Catholic faith, see the need, and say, well, if it's something I can do, I ha it's something I have to do under the circumstances. I just have to do this. Mm -hmm. You know, I mentioned, you know, those who are in danger of being drawn into this, uh, this, this, this tornado of vice, of impurity, of lustfulness those who are in danger of being 
uh, on the other hand, drawn into the, the, the hatefulness uh, that might lead them to take all kinds of uh, actions against, against it, to fight it, that will not help but just make things worse. <clears throat> but there's a third thing too, and that is the example we give our children. We have to give an example to our children of, of what it means to manfully stand up and oppose evil. If we don't set that example for them, then they find themselves living in a world that is completely dominated by what is really vicious. What I mean by that is by vice, especially lust. We have every reason to expect that someday they will be ashamed of us. And even be angry with us that we failed them. Well, we have to set the example. Uh, it's long overdue to set the example of what it is to be able to stand up and profess your faith um, in the face of the, uh, you know, the the, the 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 searing blast of, <laughs> you know even the searing blast of the fires of hell, we have to be able to stand up and profess our faith. Mm -hmm. So, um, so let's do it. Let's do let's it. Let's do it. Let's do let's it. Do it. Well, Father, that's a tall task, but uh, thankfully we have uh, some great helps this month with uh, the um, Feast of the Sacred Heart and the Feast mm -hmm. of Corpus Christi, two of the uh, greatest <clears throat> feast days, I think, in the whole. Well, uh, we'll be having the procession, of course, with the Blessed Sacrament mm -hmm. and the benedictions, uh, the altars. and. Okay. Um, you know, I, I pray that all true crack, true Catholics will, will do that. Yeah. Um, we have to though, um, then follow through, you know, um, we have to be able to, uh, rise to the occasion of what our, our Lord, our Lord is asking us to do for him here and now. But you're right. The spiritual life has to be nourished in the first place. Um, by our Lord's own personal presence in the Blessed Sacrament. Uh, we have to be right with Him. Um, so, uh, I'd say, you know, during this time, we, we celebrated Trinity Sunday, which was the end of the Easter season. It was the last day that one could fulfill his Easter duty to receive our Lord worthily during the Easter season from the first Sunday of Lent to Trinity Sunday. That's the period of time. Uh, every Catholic must receive our Lord worthily at least once in order to be considered a Catholic, a practicing Catholic anymore. And um, so that the first order of business for every Catholic must be to be in the state of grace. If he's not, he's a POW, he's an MIA, he's a DOA, he can be of no service to our Lord. So he has to be in the state of grace, has to be able to... Receive our Lord worthily in the Blessed Sacrament. But then, in doing that, he will be taking into himself the divine life. And the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost will dwell within him in sanctifying grace and will outfit him with all of the armaments, all of the weaponry necessary to fight the good fight for his own soul and the souls of those he loves. So, uh, we have to first put on that, that armor uh, and to pick up the sword of faith and be ready to use it uh, for the sake of for the sake of God and the souls he loves. Okay.
Amen. And Father, thank you. God bless you. Well, thank you, John. Yep. God bless you, too. Yep. Okay. Thanks to all of our viewers as well for watching this episode of What Catholics Believe. Until next time, we ask that you all remember the words of Our Lady at Fatima to consecrate yourselves and your families to the Immaculate Heart of Mary to pray and do penance. Thank you, and God bless you.